Court, 304 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, which is proud to announce a new service offering that I've come up with called the Compliance Alliance. This is a three-step program which will provide you and your team a background into FCPA and FCPA compliance so you can consider how your product or service fits into the needs of a compliance officer. It includes a boot camp uh, put on by myself for your uh, team, sponsorship of a one-month podcast series, and in-person training to help develop the message of your product and service around compliance. Interested parties should contact Tom Fox at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have with me Joel Androfee. Joel is a defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, and white-collar practitioner in Houston, Texas. He uh, practices at the fir firm of Berg and Androfee. He is also one of the country's top KETAM and whistleblower uh, litigators. He represents whistleblowers in both KETAM suits and before the government. And in this podcast, he details for us the types of whistleblower claims, both at the state and federal level, that can be brought how KETAM actions work, what whistleblowers may expect in the way of recovery, what they may expect in the way of um, retribution by companies against them, and what they might expect in terms of process with the government. It's a fascinating podcast, which I think you will enjoy very much. He comes in at around 20 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, you are in for a real treat because I have Joel Androfee of the firm of Berg and Androfee here in Houston, Texas. And Joel is going to visit with us about a topic that uh, I don't think really gets enough play, um, which is uh, whistleblower lawsuits. And he's going to walk us through the various types of whistleblower lawsuits. Joel represents whistleblowers. Uh, in litigation, uh, both against uh, private companies and the government. He's going to talk about um, different forums and kind of the pros and cons. And it's going to be a really interesting podcast, a lot of information that uh, every compliance practitioner should be aware of. So, Joel, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, uh, thank you and welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate it. So I hope to be able to give people enough information today to decide whether or not uh, they want to pursue a lawsuit, or for corporations, what they can do to prevent these lawsuits. Yeah, that's exactly right, Joel. And so with that, uh, yesterday, uh, or, or in preparation for this, you sort of walked me through the different types of whistleblower litigation. So maybe you could start with that and explain uh, what they are at the federal and state level and how they all interact and how someone like you comes to represent a whistleblower. Well, the the whistleblower laws are both federal and state. And the type of whistleblower I work I do uh, is what's called TTAM or False Claims Act work. The federal government has a particular statute, a TTAM statute. Most of the states have TTAM statutes. Uh, Texas has one in particular. The federal government statute covers a vast variety of subject matter, whether it's healthcare, defense contractors, uh, financial institutions, uh, colleges, and things of that nature. Whereas the state of Texas's KETAM statute is just healthcare related. And what generally goes on is an individual who is an employee of a company 
uh, will see, let's take Medicare and Medicaid, which are popular areas for pursuit. The, an employee of a health care related company, whether it's a hospital, uh, a nursing home, a pharmaceutical company, a pharmacy, any of those entities, an employee that sees someone at the company cheating the federal government, it's either on Medicare or Medicaid. They could be cheating with regard to pricing, not providing the services that they've billed for, providing inadequate services. There's a whole, there's a vast variety of matters that people could seek relief on. What they will generally do is see the problem at their company and report it to their supervisors. That's not necessary to pursue a cause of action, but most employees, most of my clients will take it up with their employers first to see if they can rectify the problem. If they see, for example, a nursing home not providing adequate treatment or providing deficient services and not taking care of its residents, but billing the government for Medicare or Medicaid all the time, they can report it to their bosses and it's up to their bosses to take some action. The only way they end up with me is when their bosses just ignore them or they terminate them or they demote them, and which is a common occurrence. In my experience, most companies in the healthcare arena, defense contractors, financial institutions, you name it, they will quickly retaliate against the person that's reporting it. They don't want that into person interfering with their money-making machine. Because a lot of times, the way I look at it, most of these companies would rather cheat 90% of the time and get caught maybe 10% of the time. Because they know that most of the time, nobody's gonna report it, they're gonna get away with it for years. So if that's the way the company wants to operate, they run the risk, but they know at the end of day that they may have to pay a significant amount of money back but that generally pales in comparison to the amount of money that they've made through their schemes. Not all companies are like that, but a significant number behave that way, especially companies that continue to see the same problems over and over again, because the federal government has a general list of these companies that they see uh, lawsuits on behalf of for years. So what, what I'll explain is the procedure. A whistleblower goes to his company, complains, they terminate the person or they demote the person. Then the person has recourse to come to a lawyer. The person goes to a lawyer like myself or any other lawyer that handles these types of cases. And you should go to a specialist in this area because there's too many um, red flags that you have to be careful about, too many procedural issues you have to follow to make sure you do it right. Firstly, I explained to the client that if you become a whistleblower, you probably won't get a job again in the same area that you work. Most companies will, ne will never hire somebody that they've seen as a whistleblower before. So if you're a, uh, an employee of a pharmaceutical company and you blow the whistle, you may blow the whistle and pursue a lawsuit for a couple years, but eventually it'll catch up with you. And whether you're successful or not, you probably won't get a job in the industry again. We carefully let our clients know that this is one of the downsides of filing these lawsuits. Although you may get a substantial reward and you may get compensation for your retaliation, that won't generally get you your job back. 
The law says, though, that if you prevail in a lawsuit, your employer has to bring you back on board and pay you double the damages of your retaliation. Uh, and they need to pay the federal government up to three times the amount of money that they cheated the government on, a portion of which you could collect. The whistleblower gets anywhere between 15 and 25 percent if the government joins the lawsuit. If the government doesn't join the lawsuit and you pursue the lawsuit on your own, you get anywhere between 25 and 30 percent. So you have the potential to make a lot of money, and you need to, because by reporting this, you probably will have to change fields of practice and your various employment endeavors to go into an area different than what you've learned over the years. So you have to be careful going into it. You need to make sure you have a solid case before you pursue this type of case. And that's why you need to consult with a lawyer that knows what he's doing. Just don't go file a lawsuit because you think somebody's cheated somebody. There's certain hurdles you have to overcome to make sure you have a good case because it's a once-in-a-lifetime matter for you. Because if you don't have a good case and you lose, not only do you spend years without any compensation for what you've done, but you're going to be ostracized in your field. So you have to make sure that you have a good case. You go to lawyers that know what they're doing and can guide you in terms of the best course of action. And sometimes the best course of action is just reporting it to the government and not filing a lawsuit. But then you won't recover any money. And you're, you're entitled to recover the money for your uh, actions in blowing the whistle on the company and getting a portion of the amount of money the government receives in return. You're also entitled to a portion of the money for your retaliation. Uh, if you had a job and you're making $100,000 a year, for example, and the company terminates you and you can't find a comparable job and you go out and get a job making $50,000 a year, then you're entitled to the difference between the hundred and the $50,000 a year times two, no matter how many years it took you to find a better job. So there's some good teeth to the statute that protects whistleblowers. One of the things you have to be careful about is getting information to your lawyer. When you go out and you get from the company information to give your lawyer to corroborate what you're doing, a lot of lawyers would like, for example, documents, records, emails, other information that sort of corroborates your story. The government generally will not take somebody's word for it. They want some support. But you have to be very careful about the support you get. You can't go rummaging around people's computers or file cabinets to pull documents. You can access documents that are within your care, custody, and control, documents that you work with on a daily basis, provided you turn those documents over or your lawyer turns them over to the government. You can't take these documents and try to compete against your company or, you know, turn these documents over to a competitor. That would be bad practice. So you have to make sure that your lawyer pursues a false claims act case, turns over these documents to the government, and then you should be proceeding in that correct fashion. A lot of employees, I find, have uh, audio and videotape of the improprieties at their companies. And those are very powerful tools for the government. They don't have to take your word. They don't have to read a document. They can actually hear the voice of your employer uh, talking about, you know, potential criminal activity. And these go a long way towards supporting your case. 
your lawyer takes all this information in the in the false claims contact and puts together what's called a disclosure statement. This disclosure statement is sent to the federal government before you file your lawsuit. Um, you may file your lawsuit on behalf of the federal government, and you would file it on behalf of many state governments. If you're dealing with a Medicaid issue, you can't just file a lawsuit on behalf of the U.S. government because the U.S. government only gets up to one-half generally of the state's portion of any Medicaid payments. So you have to file your lawsuit on behalf of the various different states that have these KETAM statutes. But you can file it in most federal courts in the country that have a connection to the defendant. If the defendant does business in a state, then you can file it in that state, in the federal court in that state. But you, but you also have to make sure that you serve the federal government and all the different state governments with your lawsuit. You just can't file it. So there's certain procedural rules that you have to file in order to be able to recover. And when you file your case, you file it under seal so that the government and the states have an opportunity to look at your case and investigate it. Generally, it takes years for the federal government and the state governments to investigate these cases. Uh, the courts push them along, but the government doesn't have the resources, nor do the states, to actively pursue all cases that are filed. So this process is going to take a long time, and you're going to spend a lot of restless nights wanting to know what's going to happen with your lawsuit. But it's not going to be known to the public. It'll be under seal. Your name won't be revealed while your case is being investigated. At some point in time, you'll get a call from the government that they'll say, listen, you know, we want to extend the seal or we like your case. We want to intervene in your case. And if the government intervenes in the case, you have a very good chance of settling your case. The government will say, we like your case. We want to intervene in the case. We are going to file a lawsuit adopting the allegations of your case and go forward. And at that point in time, most defendants will not want to fight the federal government because the federal government controls the purse strings of Medicare and Medicaid, and so do the states. They don't want to be fighting the various people that provide the money for their uh, shareholders. And they have a lot of explaining to do to their shareholders if they're going to fight the government and run the risk of being barred from any type of participation in future programs, which the government could do. They can suspend them or bar them. So, you know, you would hope that's the outcome, but a lot of times the government will turn your case down and it's up to your lawyer to decide whether he will take the case on his own without the government's involvement. At that point in time, the, your interest in the case goes from a potential 25%, from 15 to 25% to 25 to 30%. So you get an increase in the potential percentage of recovery you'll get, but you'll be litigating your case for maybe three years or so before you get any recovery or get any finality to your matter. So it's a long process. It's a difficult process. It requires hiring experts, people to evaluate pricing information, uh, doctors to look at whether or not the services being provided are fair and adequate. Uh, it requires a lot of expertise by the law firm and by the various experts that are employed by the law firm to make sure you have a good case and proceed with a good case because the defendants will fight you on these cases, 
and you have to make sure that you have the right information and the right data and the right support to um, uh, prevail. Now, these are the false. This is sort of a long introduction to the False Claims Act cases, KETAM cases. There are also other ways that whistleblowers can pursue cases. One is under the Dodd-Frank laws. Those those are the laws that um, were enacted um, years ago, and those Dodd-Frank laws provide for remedies for violations of the Securities Act and the Commodity Exchange Act, and they apply to violate, unlike Medicare and Medicaid and defense contractor matters where the public money is involved. Uh, these securities matters really provide uh, recovery if the corporation uh, violates the securities laws or the commodity laws. For example, uh, if the Dodd-Frank applies to the violation of almost any law regulating securities, commodities, derivatives, or financing, insider trading, Ponzi schemes, bribery, or violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So if you are working at a company and you see an FCPA violation, uh, you could report it to the company and see what they do. Nine times out of ten, they won't do anything. You'll be disciplined for reporting it, unfortunately. Companies need to learn. I would say 99% of my clients wouldn't have ever come to me if their companies listened to them and fixed the problem. So that's a big notice to corporations. Do what your employees tell you to do. Look into the problem because they won't be filing lawsuits. The government won't be in your backyard looking at your business uh, if you just follow the directions of some of your loyal employees that really want to keep their job rather than try to work with the government to collect money from you. Um, so let's take FCPA cases, for example, which have become pretty popular to pursue. If you sense that your, your company is violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act by, for example, paying bribes to officials in foreign countries to get business, and you report it to the federal government, you report, unlike the False Claims Act whistleblower provisions, you don't file a lawsuit under seal. You file a complaint with the SEC whistleblower office. You file the complaint with the SEC whistleblower office, and you detail to them what the exact FCPA violation is. They will investigate the case. If you're right, then you're going to get a sufficient recovery from the Securities and Exchange Commission once they pursue a matter and once they, they collect against the various defendants that they go after. So that is a uh, another way that whistleblowers could, you know, fix a problem and get compensated at the same time. There's also retaliation provisions like there are in the False Claims Act. Um, so that is a very popular area, not oh so much in FCPA stuff, but any type of securities violation uh, or type of Ponzi scheme that you sense is happening. But you got to make sure um, that the entity you're going after is a viable corporation. Rarely do people go after individuals in, in False Claims Act cases or Dodd-Frank cases, because at the end of the day, you don't want to go through years of litigation or years of effort and then find that the defendant had no money to pay or the government wasn't collecting anything. 
you may have put the person out of business, but you're not in there to put somebody out of business. You're in there to make sure that the problem's rectified and you're appropriately compensated. Uh, there's another provision for whistleblowers, and that's under the IRS laws. Uh, under the IRS laws, um, you can report somebody that is cheating a corporation generally because the tax penalties and interest and the amount of dispute must be more than $2 million. And the person who you're going after must have an individual gross income exceeding $200,000. And like the Dodd-Frank laws, you don't file a lawsuit. You report it to the IRS whistleblower office. Um, these offices have people that run their uh, programs and you file your complaint and let them run with it and decide what to do. Uh, in my experience, and the experience of many of my friends that practice in this area, the best avenue of relief is the False Claims Act, because you're actually filing a lawsuit. And th there's some, at least, uh, identity to the case. There's some judicial oversight. And you're not relying upon a government agency to do all your work for you. Uh, that's why people prefer the False Claims Act to the SEC provisions of the whistleblower laws or the IRS, because in those matters, you're, you're, you're relying upon regulators to do your job rather than your lawyer to do your job. Although the lawyer can assist the SEC and the lawyer can assist the IRS, your lawyer's help comes into play mostly in False Claims Act cases. So what other area? Could you go ahead, Tom? I'm sorry. Some of the help that a lawyer would provide to uh, uh, I've heard other lawyers in the SEC context really talk about preparing the the file. So it's it lays out a roadmap for the regulators. And with a KETAM or False Claims Act lawsuit, what would be the type of uh, assistance that you would provide as counsel for the plaintiff uh, to the government? Well, in, in an SEC case like an FCE like in a False Claims Act case, you try to get as much information as you can from the whistleblower. You try to get from the whistleblower as much documentary evidence as you're legally entitled to. And you can't cross the line. You can't get information that is attorney-client privileged. You can't get information that is subject to trade secrets. There's a lot of rules in place that you've got to obey. But there's a lot of documents you can get legitimately within your care, custody, and control that will provide support for your case, whether there being audio or videotape equipment involved also, as long as your client abides by the various different state laws with regard to wire intercepts and taping people. But what you have to do is you put together a package for the government. Uh, you may even have to go investigate individuals. You may have to hire experts to help you analyze certain information so you're accurately putting it down because the government uh, will have a head start if you give them good information. If you sloppily put something together, you're going to get your case rejected, whether it's an SEC or a False Claims Act case. So we spend months putting stuff together. A lot of times our False Claims Act petitions are over 200 pages in length just based upon the pleadings themselves. And we may even have tens of thousands of documents to support our allegations because the government likes the support. Although the government can take your case and go subpoena records, they don't want to start subpoenaing records 
unless they see there's adequate support already. So the government actually encourages the whistleblower to go out and get as much information as he or she can to support their claims. Because you're competing with a lot of other whistleblowers, and you want to make sure your lawyer knows more than the next lawyer, and your lawyer has more credibility with the government offices to put this together to give you a better chance of recovery than the average person on the street. But it's very important, Tom, as you pointed out, to, to be very prepared. That's why these things take months to put together. There's no case that I've ever seen that can be put together overnight. If it's going to be put together overnight in a cookie-cutter fashion, you're not generally not going to get the government's involvement or assistance in your case. So, Joel, do you, do you as counsel have a role in any of the resolutions uh, of any of these actions, or is it really up to the government to not, not only take the lead but have the sole responsibility for uh, resolving the matters? No, uh, we, we have a significant role in the False Claims Act area, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, it could be a case involving defense contractors that are cheating the government by, you know, not complying with the uh, contract specifications or not providing the right equipment. Um, we have a large role in not only reviewing our clients' documents, but when the government subpoenas documents from the defendant in the case, it's generally our responsibility to go through all those documents. Because most of the time that the government doesn't have the resources and they rely upon the whistleblower's lawyer to review all this. So we, we, we go through millions of documents that the government gets from the defendant and organize them all, put them in a PowerPoint presentation that the government can use to go to the various different defendants and say, look what you've done and look at the support we have. You need to pay or we're going to go to litigation. It goes to litigation with the government we spend a lot of time co-counseling it with the government and providing them the, the support they need with regard to taking depositions, to uh, data collection. Uh, uh, we, we, we take a very active role, and the government expects you to take that role, and your client will be more rewarded if the lawyer takes a more active role in the case. And if the government doesn't want to get involved, many times we go forward without the government. So we're doing all this discovery, we're doing all this litigation preparation without the government, but spending, you know, a lot of money to prepare these cases for trial. Because if the government takes your case, you can get um, a substantial recovery. Uh, but if you're going to go to trial, you'll generally get treble damages. The government will settle these cases for double damages. If the government has to go to trial and you have Without the government, government will get treble damages uh, in FCA cases, cover your attorney's fees. The government would also get penalties of up for a, uh, of a lot of money, uh, up to eleven thousand dollars submitted. So the recoveries and penalties could be uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on the type of case. So, Joel, unfortunately, we're near the uh, end of our time, but I was wondering if anyone wanted to contact you directly about any of the topics you've raised or, you know, might even want to talk to you about a False Claims Act lawsuit. Uh, could they email you? And if so, how would they do it? Uh, I think I put my email in the system. It's, it's Joel Androfi. The website is B-A-Firm, B as in Berg, A as in Androfi, F-I-R-M dot com. Uh, 
but my email is J Shall J Androphy, A N D R O P H Y at BAFirm.com. B as in Berg, A as in Androphy, F I R M.com. But the best thing to do is to go to our website. Uh, again, it's B A, B as in Berg, A as in Androphy, F I R M.com. And we, I have a section there on the False Claims Act and international corruption. And you can go through that and it'll guide you through the various different types of cases we handle, Medicare fraud, Medicaid fraud, defense contractors, scientific fraud, educational fraud, financial fraud, the SEC cases, and the IRS cases. That will give you a whole encyclopedia type of presentation if you follow the website. Joel, I want to thank you for this incredibly informative uh, interview and podcast, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. And if you have any questions, anybody, just send me an email or give me a call, 713-529-5622. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help in our rankings and also help get out the word on this most unique and well-rounded podcast in compliance. I hope you will join me for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.